Hello, welcome to From the Rookery Inn. My name's John, uh, with a slight cold, so I sound quite husky and ready for late-night love. It is the day after Watford lost 1-0 away at Burnley, uh, and we'll be chatting to Colin, uh, who was at the game yesterday. Hopefully he's defrosted by now, and we'll talk through the game with him. Uh, plus, a very special interview with Lionel Burney, a person who's been on the podcast many times, uh, having released several Watford books over the last eight seasons. Uh, but this year, he's the writer of Graham Taylor in his own words. I'm going to talk to him about that book, which you can now get out and about uh, in the shops ready for Christmas. Plus, we do have to have a serious chat about Andy Lewis. Andy, who most of you may know, is at Hornet's Nest, WFC on uh, Twitter, and he writes the uh, his blogs every week after every game. Uh, and Andy has a, a, a certain um, curse, let's say, on him, where after 22 games, he has never seen Watford win in the northwest of England. He went yesterday, and lots of Watford fans are angry at Andy, and, and, and maybe me too. I don't think I can speak to him, so I'll have to speak to somebody else uh, who's very close to him to try and find out what, what exactly he's up to. Uh, but let's start off by chatting to Colin about that game at Turf Moor. Colin, uh, Turf Moor, not the greatest place we visited in the last few years, an embarrassing away defeat uh, two years ago. Uh, you know, going into this game, we're, we're, we're both trying to battle our way for seventh place. Um, you could say they have a better better chance. Um, and, and to begin with, the, the, yeah, the game was, what you'd want to say, a, uh, an equal teams on equal par, uh, par having a good go for it. Until the sending off, the game ebbed and flowed quite nicely. Burnley have their way of playing, which is more direct and certainly more physical, but not dirty. I wouldn't say they were, they were a dirty side at all. They're just very physical. They they get their shoulder in. They push players out of the way under the high ball. And they do it legally. And they're very good at it. And when they get the ball, they're quite good at getting it forward quickly. But we we started the brighter. And we were always better than them when we had the ball on the ground. But when the ball was in the air, then they had the advantage. So the the game was very interesting to watch. Two Two good sides. Two very unified sides two proper teams you know playing for each other so it was it was hard to see what the result was going to be you felt that one mistake or one bit of uh, of good play would lead to a goal and probably one nil would do it and in the end that was true but that's not the circumstances under which we thought it would happen or at least I didn't think so I thought we were we were it ruined the game definitely the sending off and we were very much in it we were very we weren't under the cosh when we got the ball down and played they looked very nervous against us. We were still in it, from my perspective of listening to the game, for for quite a while. It just towards the end of the game, when clearly the ten men of Watford who had been, you know, only ten for since like forty, thirty odd minutes, um, that they they sort of really were able to impose themselves a little bit more at the end of the game. Yeah, I mean, that, they had two goals ruled off for offside. One, I think, was offside. The other one, I'm not sure what happened. The Lino put his flag up very late. I don't know what the rule is. It, it was when it was hit, he looked like he was a little bit offside, but it hit two Watford players and then got to him. It was disallowed. So they they and, and also Jan Matt, the pretty clear handball, I would say, in most people's minds, for a penalty. Although they they didn't get the second goal, and I think if they got the second goal, that would have really killed the game. You're right to say that we were in it, and particularly in the second half. And I thought the second half performance was was really quite outstanding when you consider it's freezing cold and snowing they've only got 10 men against 11 men and when you consider the way that Burnley play football to have that much of the ball and to create some quite decent chances was good for us it meant that they could go away from the game with their heads up we didn't capitulate they didn't score three or four against us 
Uh, it wasn't a game where you could felt the Watford team were looking for the final whistle, thinking, come on, let's just get this over with. You know, they were fighting right to the end. The second half was encouraging. We haven't dropped off. We've been unlucky. You know, had we got the pen, the handball against Spurs, yeah. you know, if we hadn't had the sending off, we would have picked up some more points probably. But uh, so I think that's encouraging. I think Watford fans should, should take some encouragement from that. The battling performance in the second half was really quite wonderful to watch. Uh, the, the way that we got the ball down, got it out wide. And they were, you know, they were shaky at times, Burnley. They, they, they did look nervous. But that moment of when their second goal, you thought the second goal was a goal, but then it wasn't. It was almost like, that's fine, because we know we're going to keep going to the end. We know we can score yes. last-minute goals. And that was a really, you know, like, oh, wow, that's a really interesting sort of headspace to be in at the moment as a Watford fan, going, yeah, of course, we can get another goal. We can get a win yeah. out of this still, even though there's <laughs> down to 10 men, there's still 10 minutes to go. This could still happen. And I just kept hearing John Motson's voice in my, in my head saying, you know, are they going to regret these missed chances? And is this, you know, and I thought this has got one all written all over it. I mean, they've missed three, three chances, had two goals disallowed. They haven't got a penalty and, you know, surely we're going to get one and, and they're going to be properly agreed that they've, that they've drawn the game. But unfortunately, we weren't able to get it, get it over the line. The only thing I thought was odd was that he took so long to bring Gray on. And when you're 1-0 down, OK, I understand for the first 25 minutes of the second half, you want to make sure, you know, you don't concede another one and then it's game over. But he didn't bring him on until the 82nd minute. And you thought, well, if, if you're going to go for it, why don't you go for it when the players are not completely exhausted from playing against 11 men? That seemed odd. It seemed like he waited. Maybe he didn't want to put Gray in that game. I don't know. It was odd he didn't start in some ways, I thought, away from home. We've had that debate before, you know, away from home, Gray, mm. at home, Deeney. And yet he didn't play him. Well, it's, you know, it's fair enough. It's his choice as a coach. But to not bring Gray on, if you were going to go for the, try and get the equaliser, I felt he should have come on a bit earlier, really, to give him a bit more time to get into the game. He's certainly a player who knows the temperature and knows the climate up there. Jo- <laughs> I think Geordie, jo- yeah, former weekend co-host Geordie, sort of said, this is the part of Richarlison's education. Uh, yes. to, to play in, in in a game up there in the snow, in, in the, the low temperatures. Uh, did you think he did, he did okay? Well, he certainly wasn't affected by the weather. He's struggling a bit. I suspect he's a bit fatigued. Also, teams, I mean, they triple-teamed him at times. As soon as he got the ball out there, there were three of them around him. But I thought he passed that test with flying colours. He also, uh, interestingly, wore short sleeves. Really? So that was good. Yeah, he had gloves on, but he had short sleeves, as did Ziegler. I think the only player with uh, short sleeves, no gloves, was Cleverly. And then Jan Matt and Mariapa also had short sleeves. Everyone else had long sleeves. I know it's, it's ridiculous. And it, one shouldn't sort of... You can, read, lot, you can read lots into that. Short sleeve long. There's a lot to be read into that. I'm sure we can go on about for hours. Yeah, and I thought that Richarlison wearing short sleeves, that was a good sign. It was a bit like, maybe he thought, mm, I bet people are saying, is, is this young lad from Brazil going to manage in the cold weather? Well, go on, give me the short sleeve shirt and I'll go and play in that. He was as bullish as normal. He gets up and shrugs himself off. I didn't see the penalty incident, um, which I think happened just before the sending off. But apparently it was, you know, it was again, it was it was one that could have been given. I just worry a little bit that he's got a reputation now with referees mm. that he's not getting decisions that perhaps he ought to get because of the incident against Arsenal, which made a lot of press columns, didn't it? So, yeah, that was a, that was a worry. But in terms of him sort of thinking, oh, it's too cold and I can't play my game, that, that didn't happen at all. I mean, that run he made where he got taken out was just, you know, I mean, when he gets the ball there and he flicks it and he... And the, the player had no, the Bernie player was just determined that he wasn't going to get past him. And I, was, I mean, I felt that was a borderline red card as well, because it was just such a sort of clinical bit of professionalism 
but actually it's, it, the ball had gone and he took him out. But yeah, he certainly passed the test, Richarlison, I thought. Okay, let's give him an, an A grade. If he'd scored a goal, maybe an A plus um, yeah. for his education in football. Uh, the, Gomez came across uh, as a sort oh. of a man of the match. Again, just really keeping us... You know, being the leader, you know, leader of our of our team in in, in more ways than one. Uh, I wrote a column piece for uh, Golden Page this week about how he's the most valuable uh, goalkeeper Watford ever had, and you know, the fact that we didn't you say lose that four five nil, a, a chunk of that's got to be down to Gomez. Undoubtedly, I mean, the save from the free kick. Yeah, I mean, it, it looked it all ends up that that was going in, and then suddenly he got his hand there. I don't know how he does that. <laughs> Just don't know how he does it. And he made a couple of great saves in the second half as well, again to keep us in it. And he was, you know, he really is back to his best. I think at the moment he's he, he had a, he struggled at the beginning of the season. I think with his with his you know his timings and some of his decision making and perhaps his his uh, his pace off the line. All those things just slightly suggested he lacked confidence in his decision-making. But now I think he's really, really back to his best. And you're absolutely right. He kept us in it. And uh, had we got the equaliser, the point would have been, you know, he would have won that point for us probably in terms of keeping us at 1-0. A couple of changes uh, in, the, in, in terms of the game. Jan Matt started instead of Firmino. Any marked difference really in, in, in those two? Or have we got, an, you know, two players in a position who can interchange quite easily? <laughs> There isn't much difference between them. I think that you know the uh, accepted wisdom is that for many for many is better getting forward, and Yanmat is slightly better defensively. But actually, Yanmat played very well yesterday at times, and he got forward, and he very you know, he broke into the box at one point. It was just one too many Burnley defenders. But you know, the goal he scored last season against Chelsea, the mm. goal he scored this season against Southampton, can't remember now. Yeah. He can do that. So no, not not a hugely marked difference. You don't think oh, it's Yanmat playing? We're going to be more solid at the back with a four. He got forward. He did his, you know, he he played. He did that wing play. I think he's a really good player, Jan Matt. The problem, of course, as most Watford fans will say, is that he has a propensity to get injured fairly easily. And now that we are, we haven't got for many. I don't know how serious his muscle strain is, but you do you worry that if he's the last man, you know, how many games can he play in a row before picking up something? But as a footballer, I think he's he's terrific. He's terrific on the ball, and he's he's good defensively. I think his uh, positional play and his the way he sniffs out danger. I think he's 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 he's, he's we're lucky to have him as as a, a replacement, if you like, for for many. Yeah, well, I say one game in a row. Uh, let's take it game by game. So it's a football cliche, but even more so with uh, with Daryl Yanmat. I'll tell you what was really sad about the game yesterday was um, because of the sending off. It was obvious, really, I suppose, that Pereira was the one that would be sacrificed uh, in order to to bring on uh, Holobas. Uh, it was great to see him again, uh, his irascible best, and smiling as well, smiling because he was playing, which was great. There was a brilliant um, bit on the telly. Just just during half-time, they showed some highlights, and when he came on, he's got a big grin on his face. You thought, oh, that's good. Don't see that very often. <laughs> but um, it was a shame that Pereira had to be the one that was sacrificed because he was really starting to dictate play up front for us. He was doing the opposite of what he did for Spurs. We talked about that, how he was a bit little boy lost against Spurs because he wasn't clear on what his job was. But against Burnley, his job was to get as close to Deeney as he could get and to play in that space behind him. And he was really starting to cause them some problems. Yeah, it was very encouraging to see him play up front in that number 10 role and uh, get the ball down in space between the lines and, and start to dictate. And the way he just the way he uh, passes a ball is... You know, he gets it in a tight spot, but suddenly he's just flicked it out to, you know, to Carrillo or to Richarlison or back to Cleverly and Decorey. He's just so economic in his passing. 
and always the right weight. And it just causes so many problems for the opposition. And it was just, it was a pity that it had to be him, but it was, it, it was most likely the right person to come off, the person to sacrifice. Because who else are you going to take off? You could take off one of the wide players, I suppose, but then you're, you're asking for trouble down one of the flanks. So it was, it was a shame that it, that it happened and that he was the one that was sacrificed because I was really enjoying watching him play. I think he's getting back to his best as well. Like I say, a massive sort of, you know, I hate this stupid word, positive out of the game. Because my, my, my gut says, I know they're, they're now six points clear of us um, in the battle of the seventh. Yeah. It feels a little bit like there aren't many teams, I know we haven't played everybody yet, but there aren't many teams going into the second half of the season where you are going to go, apart from Manchester City, where you're, you're going to be worried about who, when, when we, we come up against them again. No. Especially when the ones that we, you know, we've, we've played away and you know, when they come to Vicarage Road. It, it's, yeah. I'm really positive going into the second half of the season. I, I agree with you. I, I thought, the, I thought, as I say, I thought we, we looked, they're clearly very unified, Burnley, and they're, they're playing very well together. And they've got very clear instructions, and uh, we all we all know about Sean Dyche because we've experienced it ourselves. They look like a, a, a good, efficient side, but they don't have any sparkle. There's not really a player that stands out that thinks can hurt the bigger, you know, bigger teams. But they do get the ball forward. They're not, they're not, you know, they're not Stoke. But whether or not they can sustain that without a bit of extra creativity for the whole season, I don't know. And it's, you could ask the same questions of us. I mean, we've when you get a when you get a start that no one expects suddenly teams wake up and start to really analyse what you're doing and they start to combat it. And then you find that the things that were working for you in September, October aren't working for you in February and March because teams have worked you out. So it's whether or not we've got the players, keep them all fit and not have them suspended, and whether Silver has a way of changing the way we play so that we, we surprise people in a different way. If he can do that, then I think we, can, you know, we, we should be optimistic about the second half of the season. I certainly don't think that under Silver... We're going to have a kind of get to 40 points and then just sort of down tools. I don't think that, that will happen at all because I think there's, there's more ambition from him. There's more ambition from the players that have come into the club. And I think there's a real desire to end as high up the league as we can. And if we are in a position to get that seventh spot come the end of February, then I think they will really go for it. I hope so. A podcast made by Watford fans, fans. for Watford fans from the rookery end. So we move on to Sellers Park on Tuesday uh, and, uh, well, it, it feels a little bit like a, a, a must-win. Maybe not a must-win. We've still got those games against Huddersfield, Brighton, Swansea and, and, and Leicester. So, yeah, it's like Colin said, you know, th- things aren't dire. Um, we're not leaving these games uh, with our head in our hands uh, with worry. So we'll see how things go. Uh, so next up, uh, Lionel Burney um, has written Graham Taylor in his own words, an autobiography uh, about Graham Taylor, about Graham's life. Uh, and I caught up with him to talk about the book, to talk about how it came about and uh, working with Graham over the last two years. Uh, Lionel, how did the book sort of come about? The, the short answer is, uh, well, you'll remember, John, I, I wrote Enjoy the Game in, I think that came out in 2010, and that was the story of the 1980s, and I went and spoke to, well, ev- everyone that I could, I think it, I think it was sort of 50 people, um, players and management, about the 80s, and uh, Graham was very, very generous with his time. We met up at the Belfry, and he gave me uh, a full morning talking about um, the, the rise from the fourth division to the first division then we followed up on the phone a couple of times then when the book came out I got a phone call from Graham and it was it's always it was always a bit strange 
seeing on my mobile phone Graham Taylor's name coming up and the first thought was oh dear what didn't he like in the book Um, (laughs) so I answered the call with a slight bit of trepidation and he said I'm finding it really hard to read because it just brings back so many memories of of that time and we had a little bit of a chat I was obviously relieved that he wasn't ringing to uh, you know have a go at me for for something or other he said um, you know a few that a few of the comments from the players I would not necessarily agree with, but that's their perspective. Fine, um, no problem with that. Maybe one day I'll get round to writing my own book. And I said, just as a sort of throwaway comment, well, Graham, if you ever do do that and you need need to work with anyone or need some help in any way whatsoever, I'm always here. I'd drop everything to to work with you on it. It was just a it was just a throwaway comment, really. Mm. A couple of years after that, I spoke to him for something else. And he told me that he was working on a book with another journalist. And my first thought was disappointment because I thought, well, that's a shame that it's not me that he's chosen to work with. But I said, you know, good luck with it all. And then uh, another couple of years after that, I got a call again out of the blue. And it was Graham saying, it's not worked out as I'd liked, but are you still interested in collaborating on my book, helping me with my book? And I said, yes, absolutely. I'll drop everything to do that. And that was sort of summer 2014, perhaps August time. And so we met up for the first time, September 2014, and, and we went from there. And, and how, do you, how do you do such a book? I mean, you know, he's a man who could talk about everything and talk about it brilliantly and talk about it for a long, long time. Um, how do you actually go about getting, you know, the depth that a, that a writer needs to write an autobiography about Graham Taylor? Yeah, I mean, this is a tricky area. One of the sort of skills of ghostwriting somebody's autobiography is that that you don't want your mucky fingerprints all over the manuscript. You want it to sound like the the person. And so my job was to get as much of Graham's um, voice down on the page as possible. And that meant that the the great gift of, that Graham had was he was a natural storyteller. You know, he knew how to deliver a, a punchline. He he was funny. He was warm. Yes, we did sit and talk for hours and hours and hours. And sometimes we re- went back over old ground. But all of that helped because it helped me to capture Graham's voice and try to put into black and white what he wanted. In terms of how I went about it, well, the first thing I said to him was, Okay, Graham, imagine this book is on the shelves in a shop. What does the cover look like? What's the first couple of pages look like? How do you want it to be? What kind of book do you want to want to do? And while I don't want to pass comment on, I think, I think I'm probably ghost number five or six that Graham had worked with, either for a small or a slightly longer amount of time. Um, and while I don't want to sort of comment on anyone else's work because I don't know what their approach was, it struck me that as Graham had approached 70 and past 70 years of age, you know, he had the right, he had more than earned the right to tell the story of his career exactly the way he wanted to do it. And that meant, you know, when I asked him the question, what do you want the book to be? He wanted it to be a story of his life and career. He didn't just want to kind of major in, I mean, I'm speculating here, but sort of starting with the decision to substitute Gary Lineker in the 1992 European Championships, for example. Um, he wanted to set up and, and tell the story of his life as it happened, um, unfolding and, you know, taking in the highs and lows as they went along. And, uh, and, and it was my job, really, just to reassure Graham that the book would come out exactly as he envisaged it. And, and really, my role in it was to make sure that we were just kind of he would be talking and I'd be listening 
and recording and writing stuff down really it was like if you go to a bowling alley you put the sort of the the guides up on the uh, on the side just to keep the bowling ball in the middle of the alley so that we hit the pins in in the middle that was really what my role was you know you've covered Watford for many years you've heard all the stories writing all the books that you've you know you've written was there anything surprising that that you learned about Graham uh, when he was telling his stories the thing as we got more into it and as clearly as I owned his trust because at the start we were just you know yeah we'd we'd got on okay whenever we'd spoken but he didn't really know me at all fortunately he'd read stuff that I'd done and thought well that's all right so um, that I'm probably starting from a reasonably good position as we went on it was just getting beneath the kind of the Graham that we think we all know and just just getting a bit more depth and, and just hearing his stories with him knowing that he was writing his own book rather than being interviewed for somebody else's book or for a newspaper article or for a television piece, you know. I think there's a distinction between those two things and so he did kind of open up a bit more. And in terms of what surprised me, I think being a Watford supporter and knowing how important he is to Watford and Watford supporters. I think it was the the other stuff about Graham that I hadn't really appreciated. You know, I just thought he landed in southwest Hertfordshire in 1977 and was a roaring success for 10 years. And then he went away for 10 years and then he came back and did almost, you know, in modern football terms, he he recreated the miracle almost, taking the club up two divisions in successive years. I hadn't really considered the importance of the rest of his life I suppose that was the areas that I really enjoyed talking to him about because for me they were um, they were new they were fresh and you got to you went with him to all his old clubs and and spoke to him in those places how was that experience like seeing him in in all these different stadiums talking about them I mean obviously uh, I, I didn't know and, and Graham didn't know Graham didn't know he was going to pass away before the book was out and so it's difficult for me now, almost a year after Graham died, to separate how I feel about those trips now to how I felt about them at the time because they've taken on, for me personally, such a significance. I mean, here was I was getting the opportunity to go with Graham, stand outside the house where he grew up, listen to all of his stories of playing cricket and football with, with the other boys that lived in the street and with his dad. We went to his old school where he was you know, welcomed in and, and sort of taken into one of the classrooms and talked to the talked to the kids who are in there now and said you know you don't perhaps don't know me but I used to go to this school and then I managed England just from there to Grimsby and that the, the family home that that you know he and Rita lived in and then off to Blundell Park Grimsby Stadium where the the certainly the way dressing room almost hasn't changed since the days when he was a, um, a a young professional and back in those days when they used to train at the stadium a lot of the time or certainly get changed at the stadium before before training you know the the young professionals and the reserves all changed in the away team dressing room and just seeing the memories come back to him um, and hearing the stories it was so valuable to do that because it gave me a sense of what mattered to Graham, what was important to him and, and the stories that should go in the book. And of course, coming down to Watford where, because at the time he still lived up in the Midlands, so we, we met down at Vicarage Road one day, shortly after the stand had been officially renamed, the Graham Taylor stand. And he was emotional about that. And I could see just how much that really meant to him. And, you know, he said all the kind of throwaway, jokey type comments like, well, they don't normally do these kind of things for you until you've 
you know until you've passed away um and he did say i'm i'm glad that i've been able to to witness this and and you know it does it meant a lot to him that the stand on one side named after him and the stand on the other side named after elton and so those trips were well, there's something that I'll treasure, certainly, for, for the rest of my life. Uh, and, of course, the book was, had to be finished uh, after his passing. How was that sort of finishing that book off? Um, we were working with his family and, and having to make those decisions. And, and, and did you have to change the tone at all of, of the book? I think I did because it, Graham had, you know, one, one of the very first formal conversations Graham and I had when, I, when, we, when we'd been on the road trip and, and we sat down to do an actual interview and with a tape on, you know, I had to kind of get him used to the tape because as you know, John, when you're interviewing somebody, people can be really relaxed and then the tape goes on and suddenly they tie up and you have to kind of get over that hurdle first and then over the next hurdle and so on. And so the, the first interview, um, he says, I, I asked him, you know, why do you want to do it now? And he, and the sense I got was that, you know, he said, well, I've, I've reached a, a milestone age, 70, and I kind of realise it's now or never. What I got from Graham for the two years that we worked together was, was real and full commitment to, to the book. You know, he was always available. He was always keen to be working on it. He had such energy. I mean, I talk about the road trip. I mean, he wore me out on the day we went from... To, from Scunthorpe to Groomsby to Lincoln, we didn't have lunch. I, it was it was uh, it was a uh, it was uh, quite impressive to see just how much energy he had for recalling the stories from his life. And so, having put in so much energy, it felt to me, you know, obviously the day I heard Graham had died, it was it hit me in the pit of my stomach. And uh, you know, I'd be lying if I if it didn't cross, if I said it didn't cross my mind that day. Well, what are we going to do with the book? You know, sort of between half and two-thirds of a draft written so much time and energy put into it as I said but I had to just I, I couldn't even ask the question because it wasn't my place it wasn't my place to say right are we carrying on or not I, I just had to wait for um, Rita and that's uh, Graham's widow and the rest of the family to decide what they wanted to do fortunately they wanted to wanted me to carry it on and finish it in the way Graham wanted it finished. Now I look back and think, well, that was that's absolutely the right decision. Um, but at the time, it was it felt like the challenge had changed completely. I mean, I immediately felt that I you know I didn't have enough. You know, I've, there are gaps here or there, and and I think that's abs- you know that's only natural because had Graham been alive I would have gone back and you know gone over bits and pieces and you know followed up and followed up because that's what we were doing in the the weeks before before he died we were kind of going over the stuff that was familiar to me but just adding little bits here and there finishing it was difficult um it took quite a long time there were some ups and downs and there were a couple of people who I mean helped helped me so much uh, to to get it over the line one is Simon Ricketts who was a Watford supporter a very fine journalist and knew Graham and loved and respected Graham the way Watford supporters from the 80s do he was almost like my first team coach nursing me along sometimes four or five hundred words a day was was all I could sort of tease out of myself Um, but he he kept me kept me going from the sidelines and then I was very, very fortunate that a really experienced book editor who's worked for Bloomsbury, one of the biggest publishers in Britain, and has, has worked on so many successful sports books, a woman called Charlotte Attio, who is also a Watford supporter, she came on board sort of towards the end of the writing process. And without those two people, I'm not sure I would have finished it. Uh, I don't think I'd have been able to, to get it over the line. 
but knowing that the family were on you know they were supportive but of course the moment when I had to hand over the, the finished manuscript and say there you are that's that's Graham Taylor in his own words to the people who knew Graham and loved him more than anyone that was a really daunting moment and uh, to get a kind of green light from the family I mean you know that was a very special day uh, where can we get hold of the book if you're a Watford supporter the Hornet shop they're, they're flying out of the Hornet shop at the moment grahamtaylorbook.com also gives uh, a free postage for customers in the UK and then after that it's the, the you know the big guns Amazon Waterstones and other good booksellers will have it brilliant uh, I'm sure it'll be high on many uh, Watford uh, fans uh, Christmas lists um, because this year has been so important I think to us to reassess what 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 being a Watford fan is uh, and particularly that that role that Graham played in, in defining our football club oh, I went up to Newcastle a couple of weeks ago we, we tore them to pieces 1-3-0 you know a sort of real gallivanting uh, we, you know, rampaging performance at times. And my friend who remembers Graham arriving in 77, he said to me at one point, this this is the closest feeling to the feeling of 1982-83 when we finished runners-up, of course, Graham's and Watford's first season in the first division. And yeah, there's there's something about that, I think, this season that, you know, I can't, well, personally, I can't help drawing parallels back to back to the 80s and the success the club had then and um, the, the success that we're having now. It's, uh, it's almost, it almost feels meant to be. A must, I think, for Watford fans, um, and something that we will treasure and, and revisit. I think because uh, you know these are the, Graham's views, and and losing him this year has been so so big as as Watford fans, uh, and it's really made us reassess or you know really think about uh, what it means to be a Watford fan. He's the man who defined our football club, uh, and really to get his side of all that will be fascinating. You might have seen on social media uh, Andy Lewis, a Watford fan. Uh, who does Hornet's Nest every single week. It's a Watford blog, and he tells his story of being a Watford fan, L- like we do here on, on From the Rookie End. It is our story of being uh, a Watford fan. And, and he isn't a very good Watford fan when it comes to going to the North West. He's now been up there 22 times, with the first visit being in 2005, where he has never seen Watford win. He's seen 22 games, zero wins, three draws and 19 losses. He knows this and he has done some fantastic things on social media in the last uh, day or so about it. Uh, so do go and follow him at uh, Hornets Nest WFC at Hornets Nest WFC. We need this to come to an end and I didn't want to speak to Andy because, you know, he perfectly went up to, to Burnley this week. So I had to speak to his sister, Kate. Uh, she is a, a, a Watford fan as well as the whole Lewis family and I caught up with her earlier just to find out where is Andy in his headspace and, and what we could do in the future to stop him going back to the northwest. Kate, you know, you knew he was going. He told you he was yes. going. Was there a moment where you wanted him to just to, to do, you know, to, to, to not go and, and, and do something good for Watford? Yeah, I think it was a very selfish act by my brother. We even tried grounding him. Um, threatening him, I think he's sus that they were probably quite empty threats. So I think next time it's go hard or go home. 
you know, we, we're going to have to follow through with, with some things of the, that we're threatening him with. This is 22 games now in the North West. Yes. Never seen a win. The one game he missed, uh, Bolton mm-hmm. away, was uh, a fantastic game with a last-minute Troy Deeney goal. You, you know, we've, we've still got three big games up there, the two in Manchester, the one in Liverpool. Do you, th- mm. do you think he's still planning on, on, on going there? Oh, 100%. He has missed family holidays. He has missed family weddings so that he can go to football matches. So this is his dedication to Watford. So I don't think there's there's anything really that will stop him from going. Nothing at all. You know, there's not, there's not any bribery we can do, anything we could sort of... Well, I have come up with a little bit of a plan. Right. Which I have, I have titled Operation Watch Messy or Get Messy. <laughs> Watch Messy is we as Watford fans, I think we need to start a crowdfunding page so that every match that we have in the Northwest, we can pay for him to take a flight to Barcelona and watch a Barcelona game. Because right. I think he would love that. It would be a great experience for him and it would work really well in our favour. My other plan, the get messy, is uh, to pimp him out on Tinder, basically. <laughs> and, you know, past history has proven that one girlfriend won't stop him going to a football match. Have you seen that episode in Love Actually, where in the all-American bar, where there's three incredibly yes. hot American women? Yes. So I'm thinking something along those kind of lines. Okay. You know, just uh, get messy. Um, you can draw your own conclusions. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's an offer he can't refuse. Okay, so there's a line, you know, you know him best, you know the psyche of, of Andy. Um, mm. and, and, and if you, th- if you think that that's best, then I, 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 let, let, let's see what we can make happen. Yeah. Um, any any powers you think in your your mum could could she, has she tried as you know she might have tried a bit but do you reckon we could sort that out for for New Year's uh, for the second of January when we play Manchester City? One hundred percent. Like, don't get on the wrong side of my mum. She, I think she's one step away from actually asking the Northwest to take out a restraining order on my brother. Actually, make it illegal for him to go anywhere near the Northwest when Watford are playing. Excellent. Well, we, we, we've definitely got something. Um, and, you know, any of those wins, uh, if he misses any of those games and we do get a win, it will be huge for Watford. Mm. They're big clubs. It will. So I think, you know, every Watford fan listening now and every Watford fan listening who knows another Watford fan needs to mm-hmm. really get behind the No Andy Lewis uh, for the Northwest campaign. 100%. 100%. We're the Orns. You're the Orns. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to Lionel. Thank you to Colin. Thank you to Kate uh, for being on the podcast. And thank you uh, for listening. Please do subscribe uh, and do tell your friends. If you enjoy this podcast and you know a Watford fan who might also enjoy it and don't know about us, say, hey, have you listened to From the Recruit? Uh, and uh, they might start listening and it'd be great. And we want more of you involved with the podcast. So please do follow us on social media at Watford Podcast uh, on Twitter, uh, Watford Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. We are back. Uh, with more podcasts this week uh, with uh, guys going to Selhurst Park as well as the home game against Huddersfield next weekend. Come on, you horns!